So as I mentioned earlier, today's sermon is Imagine a Roofless Christmas, okay? Uh, we're looking at this passage, and uh, I know it's a movie classic. I always forget the name. I had, before it came over, I had to ask my wife, what is that name of the movie? You guys ever heard of the movie, It's a Wonderful Life? Anyone like that movie? Okay. Okay, It's a Wonderful Life uh, is a story. Uh, I love the actor. Uh, what's his name? Jimmy Stewart, okay? Uh, there's so many, that movie I think is so profound in so many ways. One of the reasons I like it more historically is I like it because it's a story about, you know, the guy is having a hard time Christmas and you wish he wasn't what? Didn't live, right? He didn't even, wasn't even born. And then as he goes around in this world, right? It's almost like Twilight Zone meets Christmas, right? He goes around in this world discovering, okay, what it would have been like if he was not born, okay? All these things happen and everything else. I, and also the other reason why I like this story is because, I mean, this was a movie that was made after World War II, okay? Jimmy Stewart, if you guys know the story about him, back then, actors were different than today's world, okay? By the way, congressmen were different than even today's world. Back then, when there was a war, there's even some congressmen say, you know what, I need, a, uh, become, I need to join the military, right? Wow. If you know Lyndon Johnson, he was a congressman. Then when there was a war, he said, oh, okay, I'll give that up. I'm going to be, what, uh, a Navy officer, okay? <coughs> Same thing back then. Hollywood was a different time back then, too, okay? It was not filled with all these guys with blue checks on Twitter saying, you know, uh, he's not my president or any crazy thing like that, okay? So... Jimmy Stewart actually joined the military and became a very decorated uh, bomber pilot, okay? He volunteered for things that were dangerous, and he flew some very dangerous missions. But I love the fact that he played that role because that movie also as well shows the role of, what about those that never went to war? What about those men who stayed behind and ran the country, did all the works, right? If you remember, there's scenes where he's doing all kinds of things, civil defense thing, uh, run all kinds of things, and yet show the appreciation of the role of others in the war, in the home front, okay? But for my purposes today, I want to have the same thing, it's a wonderful life, but imagine if there is no roof. And I would say, now, let me say this real quick. In God's world, anything is possible. Mr. Byrne has just cited Luke chapter one, right? Everything, but humanly speaking, humanly speaking, our story of the Christmas story is made possible, humanly speaking, because there was a woman named Ruth who was involved in a very difficult time in this history of the time of the period of Judges. And even as we say, imagine a roofless Christmas, what I'm trying to say is this. God has used Ruth in a very critical point in the history, redemptive history of bringing back the Messiah. God has used this woman, Ruth. And I think there's lessons for us even today, okay? If you are taking notes, we're going to have three points. How many points? Three points. Okay. And today is a Christmas message from Ruth. Okay. So these are three points. Point number one. God can bring about good. Uh, uh, God can bring good out of bad for, for our family. Okay. Point number one is this. God can bring good out of bad for our family. This is in verses 13 to 17. Okay. So point number one is God can bring good out of bad for a family. This is in verses 13 to 17. Okay? Am I speaking too fast? Okay? God can bring good out of bad. By the way, uh, these parallels is going to be the way it is. It's each three points going to be God can bring good out of bad. So if you're taking notes, you can put dot, 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 fill in each one. Okay? For a family. That's the first point. Verses 13 to 17. Okay? Point number two parallels this also as well. God can bring good out of bad for a nation. For a nation. This is in verses 18 to 22. Okay? Verses 18 to 22. So the first part is God can bring good out of bad for a family. We start first with a family. Verses 13 to 17. The second point is God can bring good out of bad for a nation. Verses 18 to 
22, okay? And then the third point is God can bring good out of bad for the world, okay? God can bring good out of bad for the world, and that's going to be the whole section, okay? Or, or the whole passage in verses 13 and 22, okay? Let me say this all over again to repeat the three points, okay? And by the way, this is important for us because as we go through life with troubles and struggles, sometimes we need to realize God is in control and God does bring good out of bad. Okay, so let's begin with the first one. Let me repeat all these three points. God can bring good out of bad for a family. This is in verses 13 to 17. Okay, this is in verses what? 13 to 17. Okay, point number two, God can bring good out of bad for a nation. For a nation, verses 18 to 22. Okay, verses 18 to 22. And third point, God can bring good out of bad for the world, okay? For the world. As we uh, about to start with part one, uh, remember what's going on in Ruth chapter four. You know, Boaz wants to marry who? Ruth, okay? Then they did the whole legal <coughs> drama that we saw a few weeks earlier. And now they're finally married. And this picks up. Really, everything that was almost like humanly desired is actually been answered in Ruth chapter 4, okay? You remember the story? Ruth is this widow, okay, from another country. Uh, and she's decided to go with this old Jewish mother-in-law, okay, because she loves her. And also, as we saw before, she also have become a true believer. And she's now taking care of this widow, even though her mother-in-law says, go back. You're still young. You might go back to your parents' house and find someone to get married and take care of you. But this woman decided to stay. I'm going to stay. And what? Or say that she's going to stay with her mother-in-law. Which back then, they're in a day with no social security, no welfare, no, none of those things. That was almost like signing up for what? A very harsh yes. life. And a life that could be taken advantage by mm. others. Okay? Now, Ruth is finally married to Boaz, okay? The legal drama that we saw earlier in Ruth chapter 4, Boaz did this. And now, by the grace of God, he is married. And now we're going to see, really, in verses 13 to 22, the people's reaction with all of this, okay? They're, they're seeing this in a big picture way. that, like, whoa, God is great and gracious, okay? So let's look at point number one. God can bring good out of bad for family, okay? God can bring good out of bad for a family. But let me summarize real quick. What are the bad things that's happened? Okay, do you guys remember in Ruth chapter 1? Uh, there was a family, a Jewish family, during a famine. They live in Bethlehem. They moved away. By the way, in God's word in the Old Testament for the Jews, whenever there's a famine, that's actually a sign that what? They have drifted away from God. And the book of Judges shows that. They drift away and they followed after idols. And they were not uh, kind or loving towards others, even their own Jewish clan, and etc., all that kind of thing. So there's a lot of time, uh, there's a time period of sin, and yet this family moved away to Moab. And that was a bad thing in three ways. I'm just going to summarize, okay? Because in order to establish point number one, God can bring about uh, good out of bad for a family. What are the bad things that happen? First and foremost, Naomi's family left the promised land, okay? And that promised land is unlike other country, okay? Unlike even the United States. If they follow God, God will bless that land with prosperity, okay? So we cannot use the Old Testament versus prosperity or say it's equal formula for today because we're not under Israel's covenant, okay? I think there's principles, right? I think sometimes there's principle. If you're generally godly, if you're generally hardworking, there might be fruits of that, okay? But the uh, a family move to Moab was a bad thing. And number one, they left the promised land, okay? Second point is Naomi's son married non-believers, okay? That was one neg uh, second negative thing, okay? Uh, and looking at Ruth chapter 4, that was a uh, second negative thing. Uh, married non-believers. And also Naomi lost what? Her husband and her sons, okay? 
Uh, that, those are negative things. But yet, despite this, God was still going to bring about good, okay? So in our point number one, God can bring about good out of bad for a family. After summarizing all these bad things, yet God bring about good to bless this family. But then God's human instrument is who? His roof, okay? So remember, we, we say today's title is Imagine a Roofless Christmas. Well, if roof was not the equation, everything would be very different. But now God's going to use roof, okay, to bless this family, okay? Uh, first and foremost, we're going to uh, mention six good things that came about, okay? The first thing is, turn with me to Roof 116. Roof 116, okay? So our point number one is God can bring about good for a family. Uh, so we're going to go from family, nation, and the world, okay, of a bad thing, okay? But here, point number one I think we need to see is a roof gained salvation. Now, we know from Scripture they should have been obedient, all these other things. But nevertheless, God still worked out of good out of this. Even in the case of Naomi, some married non-believers, is that Ruth did gain salvation. Ruth 116. Do you guys remember Ruth 116? We're going to read this because in the conclusion, this will come back very, very importantly. Okay? Ruth chapter 1, verse 16. Uh, Ruth chapter 1, verse 16 says this. This is when Naomi told her daughter-in-law, Hey, go. Go back. <laughs> And Ruth, the daughter-in-law, says this. Do not urge me to leave you or turn back from, the fo- from following you. From where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people. And your God shall be my God. Okay? An incredible announcement of faith. Not just with words, but what? With action. Okay? This is incredible because I don't think necessarily... Naomi is always the most godliest example. I don't necessarily think her, 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 Naomi's husband and sons were necessarily the most godliest example. But nevertheless, you know what I find so beautiful of this? Is that God still used very imperfect, even hypocritical sinners to lead others to what? Know the Lord. I think the first blessing, uh, God turning uh, bad, uh, into good is Ruth gained salvation. Ruth came to become a real believer of God. Okay. Secondly, is we see a second blessing. So again, we're looking at establishing point number one. God can bring good out of bad. We already just got all the bad, but now, or summarizing that, now we're going to see a second blessing. Turn back with me to Ruth chapter four, verse thirteen. Turn back with me to Ruth chapter four, verse thirteen. We're going to see a second uh, good that God brought about out of a bad thing, and that is this. Boaz gained a godly wife, okay? Boaz gained a godly wife. This is found in the first half of verse 13. It says, So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife, okay? Now, I know in the English, we hear the word took, you usually think sometimes that not, not, might not necessarily be polite, right? And we say, hey, why did you take that? Or, you know, or that kind of thing. But the word here actually in Hebrew is actually an expression of marriage, okay? You see this in Abraham's marriage to Sarai, okay? Which later became known as Sarah, okay? In Genesis eleven twenty nine, Isaac to Rebecca is also the same way that's used. Genesis 24, uh, verse 67, okay? So this word took is the idea that when it says uh, he took um, Ruth is actually showing that he is what? Marrying her. In, in that term, it will be very polite in the sense of saying, oh, wow, this is a good thing. It is from Boaz's perspective that he has what? Married Ruth, okay? And I love how it says she became his wife, okay? This is a pretty incredible statement. If you remember the flow of Ruth chapter 4, if you think about Ruth in all these four chapters, you would know that Ruth's status 
has changed various times, yes? Mm-hmm. Okay? If she had a Facebook, I'm not saying she does, but if she had a Facebook, in the beginning, she was a little kid, right? It says what? Single. Then one day it says what? Married. Then one day it says what? Widow. Okay? Then after widow, look with me in Ruth chapter 2 verse 10. Ruth chapter 2 verse 10. Ruth chapter 2 verse 10, she said, she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, why have I found favor in your sight that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner okay um so roof chapter 2 verses uh 10 she is now a foreigner okay that would have been a changed status then look with me at 213 then she said i found favor in your sight my lord speaking to boaz remember the scene in the field for you have comforted me indeed you have spoken to your maid servant we'll stop there maid servant now she's using the term in that culture there's a lot of kinds of slaves she's using the term of the lowest kinds of slave so she went from foreigner to what the lowest of the lowest of slave. Then you see her status change again in Ruth 3, 9. Okay? Ruth 3, 9, he says, he said, who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your maid. Okay? So this is another term. This is a more elevated servant. Okay? Not the lowest, but now she's still a servant. Still saying, I'm, I'm a servant to Boaz. Okay? But then when we get to Ruth chapter 4, verse 13, what a beautiful transition. Now she become what? A wife, okay? And not just a wife. She was a wife at one time. But now she's a wife of someone that's living and someone that is desiring to follow after God. So you see Boaz gain a godly wife through all of this, okay? That's a second good that God brought about from a difficult situation for a family, okay? Third point is Boaz and Ruth gained a special son. Look with me at the second half of verse 13. It says, And the Lord enable her to... What does it say? Conceive. And she gave birth to a son. Okay. God in this whole story, I love the book of Ruth. Because when you look at Ruth, there's not necessarily supernatural miracles. But you see a lot of providence. Say the word providence. Okay. Providence is God working. Uh, I think God works in two ways. Providence and miracles. Okay. Miracles are things that usually we think that are not normative happening every day. But at the same time, uh, I know when we see, for instance, a baby being born, uh, I say it's a miracle, but some people really theologically astute will say, oh, no, it's not a miracle, Jimmy. It is a providential work of God. I say, yeah, yeah, okay. Uh, whatever you call it, okay. It's God still, His grace working through, right? The, in the ordinary, we often call it providence. And in miracle, we often think like, I don't know, God, Jesus Christ feeding the 5,000, right? Walking on water, that kind of thing, okay? If, if miracles happen all the time, that way everyone walk on water, then we would say, oh, it's not a miracle. It is still a work of God. It's providence. Does that make sense? So I love the story of Ruth because God works through providence. He's often behind the scene. And when you look at Ruth, this is more, I think this book in the Old Testament relates almost to us like the day-to-day life. Okay? Day-to-day life. People have difficulties with in-laws. Yes? People have difficulties. People die. Right? People struggle with relationship. Right? People want to desire to be married. There's all these drama. I mean, this is here like, this is like, this is like, Days of our lives, okay? So we see here, okay, all these things that's going on here. And now she's married. And the third special thing that God works providentially is God brought about a child, okay? And in the second time, the only twice in this book does it ever say God directly does something. Here it says in verse 13, the Lord enable her to conceive, okay? It is God's working behind the scene the whole time. But this is one moment. This is a sec- one of two 
times in the uh, in the book of Ruth that is is explicitly stated that God does something in this story. Okay. By the way, this is seen especially as an act of grace, even though it's providential. It's still seen as an act of grace because remember how long Ruth was married to the, her former husband? It was for 10 years and had no child. Back in those lifetime, people don't live that long. Being married for 10 years without a child is a long time without a child, okay? In that context where people's lives were not necessarily as long as you see here. God brought, bringing this about shows that God answers prayer requests. Remember in verses 11 and 12? Look with me in Ruth 11 and 12. Remember earlier? This was the prayer of the men that were witnesses of them uh, when the legal thing where uh, Boaz went to the elders and then uh, to the other uh, near relative and they got married. And then he says, hey, you guys going to be witnesses. I, I asking you to be witnesses. And they say, oh, yes, we will. And by the way, we want to bless you and say that this woman we hope will be like Rachel and Leah who build the house of Leah. Okay? This is so beautiful. This show that God answered prayers. Yes, even in the midst of so much Trouble and all the bad thing. God brought about a good in that Boaz and Ruth gained a special son. There's also a fourth good for this family. Naomi gained a special daughter-in-law. Look with me in verses 14 to 15. We're going to be really looking at verse 15, but just for context. It says, then the woman said to Naomi, Blessed is the Lord who has not left you without a redeemer today. And may his name become famous in Israel. May he also be a restorer of life and a sustainer of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you and is better to you than seven sons has given birth to him. Okay. There's a second scene, second episode in the final scene. And notice, by the way, the story begins in Ruth 1 with a woman, with woman talking. And it ends with what? Woman talking. Okay. I think there's a beautiful, and it brings it up. That's a parallel. But now notice the differences, which is very key. Here it involves a woman of function, uh, Bethlehem. It's almost like a musical, okay? Like here's these women bring over and they're like the chorus for the story. And they're having an outbreak of praise to God in verses 14. That's where they begin. They praise God, then they pray for this young child. And then they give an encouragement for the gran- uh, grandmother, okay? Naomi. And I love this because earlier, do you guys remember in Ruth chapter 1, when the woman saw Naomi... They ask, is this Naomi? Did they notice Ruth? Not at all. Do you guys remember that? We went the whole thing where Naomi says, I have no one in my life. And who's standing next to her the whole time? It was Ruth. And then, now, and then even the town folks don't even notice. They're like, hey, who's this? They don't ask. For me, I'll be like, hey, there's a stranger. Hey, who's this person, right? They're not even like, it's just so beneath them. They don't even focus. But now, look at the words. They focus on this daughter-in-law. They don't call her foreigner. Notice they even call her what? Daughter-in-law. Do you guys see how beautiful this is? For how many times Ruth is called a Moabitess? For the emphasis that she's a stranger and a foreigner. Here the people have even embraced her and even said, Hey, your daughter-in-law. And this is their evaluation. She loves you. That is love like Naomi. And notice they're going to make a comparison. They say, She is better than seven sons. Okay? Seven sons, uh, I looked online on BibleGateway.com. The word seven sons appear quite a bit in the scripture, okay? Uh, it's often seen as a source of great blessing, okay? For Samuel 2.5, Job, uh, I think Job has ten sons, which is like overkill of good, okay? So you see this theme of seven, okay? It's a good number, right? It's a good number, and then seven sons, like, whoa, what an amazing thing. But you know what the women are saying? More precious than seven sons? Is this one 
woman named Ruth. Why? She stayed faithful. She stayed with her mother-in-law, even though other people she could have left any time. She signed up to take care of the uh, mother-in-law, even though it means being in a foreign land in a difficult situation as a woman, as a widow, being a beggar in some foreign field in a dangerous time, right? Where women could be taken advantage of. Yet we see the beauty of this precious daughter-in-law. So you see, right, um, this beautiful story, what God brought about good. Then there's also a fifth good. This is in verses 16 to 17. 16 to 17. Just so I could catch my breath, Josh, in big boy voice, could you read verses 16 to 17? Uh, chapter 4. Oh, yes. Mm-hmm. Then Naomi took the child and laid it in her lap and became his nurse. Yeah. Uh, it- Okay. Yeah, so I think here, verses 16 and 17, you see God's goodness to this family is that this family line continued. Okay? I want to say some word about verses 16 because I think uh, people sometimes focus on this. Uh, I remember my wife asking, like, what is going on? How could she, this old woman be nursing a baby? Isn't she beyond that age and all that? Okay. Um, I actually think the word, um, I, in some version, does any of your versions, instead of saying lap, she laid her in her lap, does any version say lay her in her bosom or chest? Yes. Okay. Uh, I think the word actually is better translated as lap, okay, uh, in Hebrew. And also, I think the other, re- I think the reason why they colored that is because of the word um, nurse, okay. But I actually think the word nurse doesn't necessarily mean like a mother nursing um, baby, okay, because this word actually is used. The same verb is also used of men, also why as well. Why did they call it a different word, a lap? Yeah, I think what they do that is it's a word possible meaning, but then it's colored by the word nurse. So then they think, oh, maybe it must mean like, you know, a, a young mother nursing a baby, like giving milk. But this verb is actually used elsewhere to talk about men doing. So I think it's more idea of taking care of, not necessarily you provide the milk. Because, for instance, uh, in Esther uh, 2.7, this is uh, Mordecai is taking care of Esther. But Mordecai is a, is a man, Okay. <laughs> Okay, as a man, okay, I know we live in a day and age where there's like 70 genders or whatever else, but in scripture, okay, uh, it, it, it is, uh, is a man. He's biologically unable to provide milk. But, but then you might say, oh, it's a miracle. Uh, if, you guys are in, if you guys were with me uh, in Lighthouse, we went over about how Psalm 22, the Jewish misinterpreted that by saying Psalm 22 is a prophecy of Esther, not of uh, not of, de- of Jesus. So this is how far they would go. So they would even say, oh, God caused uh, um, Mordecai to be able to grow female breast. Of it just gets kind of weird and, and, and like out, outside of Scripture. Okay? But here we see the guardian is for Ahab's son. If you're just taking it, we're not going to turn there. 2 Kings 10.1. This verb is also mentioned about men taking care of Ahab's sons. Okay? Now, I don't think it's in light of this usage. Okay? I think it's very likely uh, referring to just taking care of, okay? So this is more the idea of a grandmother taking care of, not necessarily nursing, okay? I bring this to say is this because every, uh, I feel like a commentary spill ink over this and people ask you, my wife was, even the week before, was like asking, hey, I wonder what this is about. Will you be going over this, okay? So with this setup, the emphasis of verse 16 is Naomi's joy, okay? She's joyful to have this child. She's joyful that, wow, her lineage could have another, what? Generation, Okay? But then you see the verses 16, the joy of the folks from the town too. There's a giving of a child's name by other women, which is kind of unique. Usually what? You name your own child, right? But they name him what? Obed, okay? 
Though the son was born to Ruth and uh, Boaz, the woman emphasized how the blessing is to Naomi, right? We look at verses 7. It says, right, um, a son has been born to Naomi. Now, not literally, physically, but it's from the lineage, okay? So that's one good thing, that God has allowed this family, even though from a very difficult situation, it looks like the family line is going to cease. But now, guess what? There's now another child. By the way, it's not just one generation. Is there a second generation? Yes, because verses 16 goes on and says, They name him Obed. He's the father of Jesse, okay? And by the way, is there still another generation afterward? Yes. Yes. David, okay? And from David, you know, David has a lot of uh, sons that were kings, okay? So we see here, God brought about, from this bad situation, God was still good. The family line continued, okay? The family line continued, okay? And the Lord gained praise, okay? The Lord gained praise, which is another good. Because in verses 14, the woman said to Naomi, Blessed is the Lord. In Hebrew, the word blessed is, should be the object, but it's moved forward. Even in our English, right? It doesn't say the Lord is blessed. It says blessed is the Lord, okay? Blessed is the Lord, even though it is the predicate, okay? So you see here, there's an emphasis that when we talk about blessing God, it's not like we bring something to God necessarily, but we're really praising God, okay? So that God is glorified, okay? God is glorified. So these are six good things for the family that God has brought about. But in this book, I want to say this too. The book is not just about God blessing any other family. And by the way, we should already be encouraged, right? Even sometimes when we hear prayers, people's testimony of what God has done, we should be blessed. Mm -hmm. We should always rejoice with those who rejoice. Sometimes when we read the verses like, you know, uh, weep with those who weep, we we will say, yeah, yeah, I know. When we're at church, I'm ready to weep. But also the other part is what? We should not be jealous, or covetous, we should also rejoice with those who what? Rejoice. That's what scripture says. So even with this, we should already be blessed to see, well, that same God that works in them is also going to be working in me. But you know what? The beauty of this story is this. It's, this is not just a story of God bringing out of bad, good out of it for a family. We're going to see point number two. Okay, if you're taking notes, this is point number two. Point number two is this. God can bring good out of bad for a nation, for the nation of Israel. Then look with me now. We're going to be looking at verses 18 to 22, okay? I'm just so happy because we finally made it. We finished the book of Ruth, right? Okay? Uh, we finally finished two books only uh, in this whole year, okay? Uh, Ruth chapter 4, verses 18 to 22 is a genealogy, okay? Is a genealogy. There's 10 names that are mentioned here, okay? How many names? 10, okay? If you add it all up, it would have covered over 650 years, okay? With the first name, Perez, with the last name, David, okay? That's a very long time, okay? That's a very long time, okay? But I think with this genealogy, you're going to see this blessing of this child. I mean, earlier, do you guys remember the people praying? Verses, um, verses 11, when the men, they prayed, hey, may your wife, to Boaz, may your wife be like Rachel and Leah, building up the house of Israel. They're not just looking at the local blessing of our local town. They're saying, oh, we hope your son will bless though. Now, now, they might have just been polite saying it. But at the same time, did God bless them beyond their comprehension? Oh, yeah, okay. Look with me also as well with the woman, okay? So that was the men chorus in verses 11. The woman's chorus in verses uh, 14. They say, may his name, that is the child, become famous in all of what? Israel. Wow. Did God bring this about? 
Yes, okay. So we see this genealogy, but you know one of the things that I love about this genealogy is when you look at some of the details of the name, when you actually go through the details of the genealogy, I think we learn something here. That God can bring good out of bad for a nation. God can bring about bad, uh, good for uh, uh, something bad, even for a nation also as well. God works, how? How does God does this? Is God works through undeserving people. Okay, look with me first. What is the first name mentioned in verses 18? Verse 18 in the genealogy, who's the first person named? Perez. Perez, okay? Who is Perez? Okay? Don't say, oh, it's someone that I work with, his last name is Perez. <laughs> That's what I'm talking about, okay? Perez, if you guys know, he was a twin, okay? In fact, he is born from Tamar, okay? Do you guys remember that really strange chapter in Genesis 38? Where uh, Tamar was married to, and her, uh, like her husband was wicked, so he died. God punished him. Then she married one of the brothers. Remember the whole every, uh, marriage thing? So then the other sons were also ungodly. Boom, died. So Judah was the father-in-law. It's like, keep giving his unmarried son. Each one dies. So he started thinking, by the way, uh, remember in science class, right? There's a difference between correlation and what? Causation, okay? So the cause of why they're dying is because they're sinful. But Judah just looks at this and says, Oh, every time I give one of my sons to Tamar, they die. Must be something with Tamar. So then he had the wrong correlation and says, Okay, I'm not going to give my son anymore. Because they all die. Which is the real causation is what? Their sin. Their disobedience to God. But then because he doesn't, even though he should, but by the laws of the custom of their day, he doesn't. And then remember, Tamar does something kind of ungodly. She decides to act like a woman in the... A woman of ill repute, okay? Uh, I, woman in the street doesn't fit properly because it's woman like a rural area. Night. Say again? Woman of the night. Yes, woman of the night, okay? <laughs> it said it was during the daytime, I think. And then she comes over and then he does his thing and it says, uh, you know what, uh, I'll come back. I don't have anything. And then uh, and she says, okay, it's okay. Give me all these things. And then it turns out she was a child, okay? And then she gave birth to a twin. One of the twin is Perez, Okay? This story, when you hear the name Perez for the Jews, they would have think like, you know, in their mind, it's like, ooh, man, look at this genealogy. It's like TMZ material, okay? It's like gossip material. It's like, what? Perez? We know who Perez is. We know who he is. We know the illicit story of the mother of Perez having relationship with her father-in-law, okay? Now, in bringing this up, this is not to say, oh, you know what? We should do the same thing. By the way, there's a commonality with uh, the mother Perez and the same thing with, with Ruth. You know what's the commonality? Is they were both foreign women. Okay? They were both foreign women. Notice God uses even the foreign women in the history of Israel. Okay? Uh, in the history of Israel. Okay? And, they, but, and of course, the difference is what? Is Ruth was godly. She didn't do... Uh, Pursue sinful. I mean, there was that iffy moment, right? It was just borderline over there in Ruth chapter 3 earlier, right? But still, okay? Did God use this bad to bring about good? Yeah. By the way, if you look at the story here also as well, who was, um, who's, a, who's the father of Boaz? Look in this uh, passage here. Who's the father of Boaz? Salmon, okay? Now, I know when you look at these names, a lot of these names we probably don't know, except for one. 
David. Uh, some of you guys will say ram and salmon, okay? Because I eat it all the time. No, okay? Uh, but uh, 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 with this, okay? Now put your pinky or thumb. This is going to be important. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 1, verse 5, okay? I want to look a little more detail at salmon, okay? The man, not the fish, okay? <laughs> Matthew chapter 1, verse 5. Could I have a happy, motivated reader read that out loud so I could catch my breath? Salmon was the father of Moab. I read Okay. Yeah, okay. Thank you so much. If you look at this, this looks very similar to Ruth 4. Yes? Okay. Um, but here it says, Salmon, we know this information is repeated, is he's a father of Boaz. But one added detail is revealed here. Who is Salmon married to? Rahab. Rahab, okay. Now, by the way, I think the genealogy here, there is some gaps in between, okay? There are some gaps in between. Because, uh, I mean, it's... Ruth was like 400, I mean, uh, Rahab was like 400 years or so, okay, uh, before, uh, or a couple hundred years before the, uh, the time uh, of uh, Boaz, okay, because that was the time of, of Joshua, and then the book of Ruth was taking place in the time of, of the judges, somewhere in that time, okay, um, somewhere in the line, there's gap, whether after uh, Boaz's time or before, but here we see what, Rahab. Now, let's go through this again. Rahab, is there something she has in common with Tamar? Yeah, they're both foreign women, okay? By the way, what was her occupation? If she had to pay tax, because Al Capone even has to pay tax, if, she, if they had to fill a tax, what would, their, what would they fill in the line of occupation? Woman of ill repute, right? That kind of thing. Do you see there's a common theme that's going on? But yet God uses that, okay? So you see, let's turn back to Ruth 4 again. So if the first bat is that God worked through undeserving people, such as uh, for the Jews, which mine is like, oh, what? The mother Perez is someone that had <coughs> ill incestual relationship with her father-in-law? Then now we see a second thing. The mother of Boaz was what? A prostitute, okay? Could you imagine growing up? I'm sure somewhere along Boaz's time, or, or one of those kids, they would easily have said, you know, kids argue, and someone argued and said, hey, you're a son of a... Fill in the blank, like, ooh, right? And yet... You see, with this bad, did God bring this about, okay? Moreover, moreover, if we continue on also as well, Obed, remember, was born to Ruth. And for some Jews, if they're really not nice, they could say to Obed as a little kid when they argue, say, you know what? Your mom is a pig-eating Gentile, okay? You came from a lineage of pig-eating Gentile. Because what? Ruth is what? A Moabitess, right? Again, do you see this beauty? That in Israel's history, God apparently has brought in the outsiders, the rejects, and put that in. Even though the society would see that as bad, yet God brought about good. Okay? What is the good that is brought about for the nation? I love in verses 22, the way it just ends is like, hey, you know, and Jesse, there is given birth to Jesse, David, is assuming you know who David is. Who is this David that all of Israel would know? Who is this David? The king, okay? I love Ruth is be- between Judges and 1 Samuel. It's like the bridge. Because 1 Samuel is going to be focusing on how God's going to now suddenly bring kids. All of Judges is like, man, this is an evil time. There was no kings. Finally, you're like, okay, there's a king. Oh, Saul's a disappointment. Uh, then David, oh, yes, he's this great king. But then we tell the backstory, okay? We tell this backstory, okay? And this backstory is what God will bring about through Ruth. Mm. 
The blessing through Ruth was not just only for our family lineage continues, but now God brought about good for a nation. Because from David's line has there been a lot of great kings. Not perfect, but there have been good kings. David, I would say, is ranked over. Again, not perfect. Solomon, in his wisdom, all of it, okay? So all of this is that God bring about good from this tragic event to even bless the nation. Yes, okay? And David is a king. Isn't this such a beautiful story? But this beautiful story gets even more beautiful. This beautiful story now becomes, this good story now becomes the greatest story ever told. In our third part, third part, our third point for today is God can bring good out of bad for the world. God can bring good out of bad for the world, okay? Remember this story is taking place in Bethlehem. This was, would have been a f- small farming town. Maybe the best way of thinking about By the way, they did not even find, archaeologists find Bethlehem until uh, not too long ago, okay? It wasn't like for the, all 2,000 years, people knew where it was. You know, I think it was uh, more recent, one of the more recent of all those biblical towns, okay? Um, so at the same time, it's a small town. Maybe the way, best way to think of it is Bethlehem is Nowheresville, Iowa, right? Nowheresville, Iowa. Where's Nowheresville? I don't know where Nowheresville is. It's somewhere in Iowa, okay? So in some small town where they're doing a lot of agriculture, God is bringing about just a blessing, a bad thing, and making it good, not just for a family, not just for a nation of Israel, to give them a king, but now for the whole world. I think you see hints of that, even within this book, anticipating Jesus Christ. First and foremost... If you look with me in verses 18, the first sentence says what? Now these are the generations of Perez. The Hebrew word for generations, this word that is used, this specific word that is used in verses 18, if you know your Bible, you would be realized right away this brings you memory of the book of Genesis, okay? Maybe this an analogy is this. When I say once upon a time, you guys know what I'm going to do. What am I going to do when I say once upon a time? I'm going to tell a story. Some kind of fairy tale with a lesson, that kind of thing. Same thing when it says now this is the generation. For the Jews, that's an equivalent also as well. Because in the book of Genesis, after some important moments it, it, throughout the stories of Genesis, it always kind of says, hey, hit a pause here. Because we're going to look at the generations. Why is that important? Turn back with me to Genesis 3 to 4. Okay? So I think the word here brings... The, the, I'm looking at the point, the word generations is a trigger word. Just the same thing when it says these are... Gen- it's like the trigger word is the same thing when I say once upon a time. You're like, okay, stop. This is going to be a story. I need to pay attention. This is important, okay? Let's go back to Genesis 3. Remember there was sin, yes? Adam and Eve fell. There was a promise in Genesis 3.15 that a woman... Eve would have her seed. Do you guys see that? The word seed is basically sperm, okay? Let me ask you guys a question. Who usually has a sperm, male or female? Male, okay? This is the only time in Scripture does it ever mention a woman having a sperm, okay? Is it because they're backwards and they don't know their... T- no, no, I don't think so because all of the rest of Hebrew usage is always biologically correct. I actually think Genesis 3.15 is a, I think it is a hope of the Messiah being born of a virgin already. Not without a man's help, okay? Not without a man's help. But this woman 
when the Messiah comes, she herself would already have a seed that God's provided. Her seed, not his seed, okay? So if you see this verse, you will be amazed, right? Because there's a miracle being promised. So should that color the way you read Genesis, the book of Genesis? Yes. Because you have just been introduced the hero of the whole world. It says, oh, you'll be born of a woman. So whenever you read the story, you'll be like, okay, where's the hero? Oh, okay, this one is not it. In fact, the next part, Genesis 4, is the story of Cain and Abel, okay? Cain's name in Hebrew. I know some of your Bible versions say something else, but the word, one of the possible words, and the word I take the understanding, is Cain means spear. Now, if you were to be Eve, God has promised, hey, you know what? You will have, from your line, someone would give birth. You or someone will give birth that will save the whole world and crush Satan. How would you feel when you have your firstborn? You really hope this child would be what? I know every time when we look at our firstborn, we're like, oh, this is the most cutest baby in the world, right? But even more so for what? Eve. Because they're thinking, this will save us, right? So let's name him. What should we name him? Oh, they talk about it. Name him Spear. Why? Oh, yeah, that's a good name. Because he's going to crush Satan, right? He's going to crush Satan. But did that disappoint? Yeah, okay. And if, in fact, if you look at Ruth chapter 4, verse 1, our English version blurs this, okay? It says, I, Eve says, I have gotten a man-child. It says, you guys, in your version, it's italicized with the help of the Lord. Do you guys see that? With the help of, that means italicized. It means the English translators try, it puts that in because they're, they don't know, they're trying to make sense of this. How could, how could someone, because if you don't have the, with the help of the Lord, literally, and in Hebrew, literally is the way. It says, I've given birth to a man, Yahweh. So for us, we read this, wait, time out. How could a man be, how could a man also be God? Uh, maybe we'll put this in to help. Maybe they somehow is with the help of the Lord. But literally in the Hebrew, there's an object marker that says, no, this child, colon, is Yahweh, okay? Now for us as Christians, we might say, oh, that's so hard. How could there be someone be a man and also be God? What is it possible in the New Testament? God becoming a man. Okay, then in Genesis 5, okay, do you see this word? This is the book of the generations. Same word, okay. In fact, look with me, not only that, look with me in Genesis 6, 9. After every important event, this is Noah's flood afterward. These are the record of the uh, generations, okay. Turn with me to Genesis 10, 1, the table of nations. These are the record of generations, okay, after the whole thing, after, what's that event in Genesis 9? Uh, 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 you know, uh, the uh, Noah's flood is over, okay. Then look with me also, and then it's before... Um, Look with me also as well in Genesis eleven twenty seven, okay. These are the record of generations, okay. Genesis eleven is after the Tower of Babel thing, okay. So every time these are the generations because it's what we're waiting for the sea, right? We're looking for the Messiah, okay. If I could use an analogy from movies, if you guys know the movie Terminator, you know that there'll be someone that's going to save the world from these evil robots. That kid's name is what. John Connor, okay? JC, okay? Like Jesus Christ is going to save the world and the robots are sending forth, right? They're going to mess up the lineage of Genesis 6 with the lineage. They're going to, Satan's going to do all kinds of things trying to mess it up for thousands of years, right? God has been doing all these stories, okay? He's been, he, but he didn't use Arnold, okay? He's going to be doing all these things to make sure the lineage of the Messiah will continue forth. And the drama of that continues in Ruth chapter 4 to the point that what? David would have been born. And David's birth, God even gives a promise even more explicit. That from you will be a king of kings and lord of lords that rule forever. Okay? And if you read Psalms as the Davidic covenant, which um, the more I see it, then you see God's forgiveness is part of the package of all of this. And therefore is blessing all of 
the world, including us. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 1. Have you ever wondered, have you ever taken an English class and they tell you to have a good introduction? Right? In the essay, what are the two good things uh, you must have in the introduction? You must have a hook, right? That is to get someone interested. And, oh, what did you say? Thesis. Thesis, right? You're saying basically, you, what is your main point about, right? Uh, you you want to say, and this is the same thing with sermon. I try to establish the need by saying a question like, hey, right? Uh, I don't know. Like, do you know the story of, uh, what's that movie? This is the, yeah, uh, not Terminator, the first one. This is a wonderful life, right? Blah, 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 interest. And then my main point is this is going to be a story about imagine a ruthless Christmas, okay? And how the Messiah is going to be, right? So we do that, okay? But if you read at Matthew, if I was an English professor, and thank God I am not, okay? Uh, but if I were to be a liberal English professor, I would say, huh, 400 years God has not spoken. And you're going to begin with a genealogy, right? When I first got saved, someone told me, I was reading the Old Testament, someone said, don't read the Old Testament. Read the New Testament with grace. And then I start, okay, I'll read the New Testament first. And I remember reading this as a very, well, before I was even saved, 15 years old, I was reading this and I was like, man, this kind of looks like a phone book, okay? Okay? But why would God, the very first thing, 400 years, first time speaking in Scripture, begin with genealogy? Why would He do this? I think the reason why, why it is eagerly anticipation, is if you know your book of Genesis, if you know your book of Ruth, you know that you've been looking for the Messiah. It's a funnel. Because anyone could be, from Adam's line, could be the other side. Now you're funneling down to exactly who fits this qualification. And in Matthew, do you see how it says in verses 3 to 4, the same names that is mentioned, and the Messiah has come to die and to save us from our sin through the birth of the Messiah 2,000 years ago. Let's go back to Ruth. I think God has brought about these bad things even for eternal good. My question for you guys is this. In your struggles, struggles, in your hardship, in your illness, in your difficult situation at work and sometimes even without work, you know, because I know sometimes that happens. But in light of all this, would you still see that God is still working? I don't necessarily know every trial everyone goes through here, but listen to me. You need to believe that God is working even in the most difficult situation. Would, would you be willing to say he is worthy, even with all of this, if it means for people's eternity is at stake, okay? I know oftentimes people, we, and it is right, it is right to focus on Boaz is the type, okay? I actually think from Ruth chapter 4, even the child being born is a type for the Messiah, okay? If you look at scripture, right, like this child being born is unique, and of course Jesus Christ is the greatest child that's unique, that's born, that's going to save us all, right? Uh, and bless the whole world, okay? And the nation of Israel and all of that. But I actually think sometimes Ruth is, um, is also a type of the Messiah, also as well, in ways perhaps we don't normally think of. Turn me to Ruth chapter 1, verse 16. I think this is the most climatic part, and there's a point of all this, okay? Let me read again Ruth chapter 1, verse 16. I love this. Don't you guys love this part? When she says to her mother-in-law, Do not urge me to leave you or turn away from following you. Where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God shall be my God. This is not just any other person saying, I love you. This is someone in a very difficult situation. A widow who had many opportunities, better opportunities. But she took care of this sick, I mean this older mother-in-law. Okay? These are words of what? Fidelity. I look at this and I think, wow, that's amazing. I'm going to tell you a story about how this verse was butchered. Okay, normally we want to write, write interpretation, but I want to tell you about a very historical 
moment, a very critical moment in history where this verse was used out of context. And I'm going to tell you the story because just to set this up, just so that we further appreciate Christ, or what Ruth went through and also Christ. This year, there's been a lot of World War II movies, right? World War II books usually sell really well, okay? Uh, people have an interest, okay? If you guys know, in 1941, the United States was still not at war. In fact, the war would start on December 7th because what, what the Japanese attack. But England was, at this time in, in history, was the only country opposing the Nazis because they would not attack Russia yet. Russia, they would not attack until the next year, 1942, on June 22nd, okay? Um, so almost a whole year, the only country in the world that stood against the Nazis because all those countries got taken over by the Nazis, the only one country stood against the Nazis. You know who that is? It's England, okay? And the leader at that time was a guy named Churchill. And America was neutral at that point. Most of the people wanted to be neutral. So FDR wanted to help by sending, selling things. So then he sent this guy, one of his friends named Harry Hopkins. Harry Hopkins did not want the United States to be at war. He didn't even want to sell weapons. But when he went to visit, Churchill took him to visit all these soldiers, to see all these bombings, to see all their efforts that they're trying to have, trying to win this guy over. That was a very, that was a, a critic of, of not wanting to be involved. So after showing all these things, and you know, by the way, Churchill is incredible. He wakes up, uh, he stays up all night, he gives all these speeches, he does all these things, and even made Harry Hopkins really tired because what Churchill was trying to save his nation. In fact, he felt he was trying to save the world. Over at one dinner in Scotland, they asked Hopkins to speak. After all these things that Churchill was trying to convince him to, hey, please help our cause. And Hopkins didn't know what to do. When he was asked, he was caught off guard. They asked, hey, could you say something after they gave all these speeches, all that say, hey, we need help, we're fighting Nazis and everything else. And he went up and said he didn't know what else to say. So then he quoted one verse. Where he quoted, you know, this is in Old English. Whither thou goest, I will go. And where thou lodgest, I will lodge. Thy people shall be my people, and my God, my God. Even to the very end. You know, you guys know church is really good with speeches, right? If you guys read, I mean, he's like, a, he's like a Spurgeon, but a prime minister, right? In terms of how good he is with speeches and words, okay? He's an incredible... If you guys ever have a chance, go on YouTube and listen to... We will fight them in this speech, right? We will fight the Nazis there. We will fight them in our beaches. We will fight them... It is incredible how this man move a whole demoralized nation to still say we will fight the Nazis because they're evil, okay? And that man who's a great speech maker heard that one verse and he said that he was in tears and he was in silence, because you understood what that meant. When that man says, I, you know, your God will be my God and your people will be my people. Where you go, I will go and all of that. He's been able to convince a critic to say, hey, be with me. You know what I think is so incredible? You know what I think is so incredible about Christianity is different than all the world's religion? All the world's religion says, hey, it's like a mountaintop reaching heaven. Everyone, there's a path. We could all go up there. They're saying there's a possibility. But you know, the difference in Christianity is this. God didn't say there's a path you could go on. God came down the mountain. Be fully God, born as a man, to say, you know what? I know what you're going through. I'm going to go through everything you go through, right? I'm going to be, I'm going to, where you lodge, I will lodge. Where you stay, I will stay. Where you die, I will die, right? And I'll, your God will be my God, and you will be my people. And you relate to us so much to be born, to die on a cross for our sins. The incarnation is beautiful because this is how we can relate to God and know God through the Son who relates to us. But more importantly, He wants to be our people so much that Christ came and He died for our sins.
Will we not turn to Him and trust in Him and love Him? Let us close in a word of prayer.